Thank you, Jesus. What, what was the bumper sticker you saw? Not today, Satan. I think that's what God's speaking to us. That's what the devil said about Job. I think it's going to be today that he's going to deny the Lord. I think it's going to be tonight as he's sitting there in the city dump scraping his blisters with a piece of broken pottery. I think it'll be now. Not today, Satan. I like that. I have uh, at the top of my notes, resist him firm in your faith. Amen. Amen. I read this passage that we all are familiar with, but I read it this morning, and I want to read it to you now just to frame what we're going to talk about, and I don't have much, but I've got to share this with you. It says, but God gives greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, or he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, now, I want to ask you right then and there, what is he concluding with that statement that we've already read? That submission is the predicate for grace. That you cannot have grace according to your own terms. That submission is the predicate for grace. So if we come to God with an unsubmitted spirit, with a whining or demanding spirit, with an accusing or finger-pointing spirit, are we going to access this greater grace that he's talking about? Submit therefore. He gives greater grace. Submit therefore. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil. So on the one side is submission, and on the other side is the devil. He says, God's giving more grace, so you need to submit and resist the devil, which is trying to get you not to submit. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he, the devil, will saunter away from you. Shuffling his feet and twiddling his thumbs and planning for another attack. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You quadruple-minded. Amen. You double-minded. Do you hear what he's saying? God gives grace. Do you want to be eligible for that grace? You need to submit. And the opposite of submission is the will of the devil. What, is, what typifies the sin of the devil, the sin of Satan? I would be like the Most High. It's not enough for me to be second. It's not enough for me to be the most beautiful creature in all the world, the wisest. I would be like the Most High. And when you do that, you get outside of the reach of God's grace because it flows low to the lowly. But he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you want the devil to flee from you? I don't think that exact statement is used anywhere else in the Bible, that the devil will flee from us. It's very similar elsewhere, but we'll get to that in a minute. I thought of this scripture. How many of you are familiar with the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians? Good, everybody, that's fantastic. 
It basically tells about all the things that the children of Israel got from God that still didn't result in their obedience and salvation. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses through the cloud and the sea. That's how it begins, right? And by the 10th chapter, it says, uh, by the 10th verse, it says, uh, do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, by the devil. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So he says, you've got a big example that you better take heed to or else you could fall in the same way they did. But then listen to the very next words. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to every man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So he says, if you're sure you're going to stand, you're probably going to fall. But if you're surely dependent on God, he will help you endure it. I'm going to just shut the Bible right there and just think about this with you for a minute. I find that people who are intractable in their faithlessness live by a lie which the devil has sold them at I don't know what cost. And that lie is that they are an exception. And I don't think it's accidental that Paul says, you're not an exception and God will provide a way of escape, escape in one sentence. I don't think he's accidentally marrying those two concepts. I believe that we are confronted all the time by examples that are written down or spoken to us as something that should warn us or something that should encourage us. But when we confront the truth of real life and real consequences in the lives of people, if we don't want the truth, we're going to sidestep that by finding some minuscule way that we are an exception. And if the devil can convince you that you are an exception, then he has robbed you of the storehouses of history that would otherwise instruct you. You can pretty much throw away the whole Bible because you're different than everybody in it. So Paul establishes this categorical truth. No temptation has befallen you except which is common to everybody. You're not that different. You're just a whole lot of ordinary normal. And it's in recognizing that that your attitude can change toward people who make mistakes and toward people who become victorious. If I am convinced that I can't change something and three guys come along to me tonight and start telling a story about how they had my exact condition and they changed, I am, I am confronted with reality and I am forced out of the cubby hole of my excuses. 
And now I'm responsible again. Oh, no. These things were written down for our example. So the only solution for sidestepping liberating truth is to spin some yarn about how I'm an exception. My background is exceptional. My relationships are exceptional. My history, whatever it may be, my personality, the way I've been treated, the way I haven't been treated, my, uh, my, my knowledge, how much I know, how much I don't know, I am going to try to capitalize on some minuscule exception. But if I succeed in doing that, then I have robbed myself of the storehouses of victory and the written down examples that the Bible and all of life would teach me. I have become someone who cannot be taught by others' experience. And I want to ask you, what are we talking about when we describe someone who cannot learn from others' experiences. We are describing what the Bible calls a fool. If I cannot open myself up to see myself in other people's battles, in other people's failures, in other people's victories, then I am condemned to fight every one of those battles alone myself to walk fool's hill myself and I am a fool. So I'm going to come back to resisting the devil but this is where I think we start resisting him. We resist the lie that we are different and we embrace the truth that we all share in a basic common humanity and that we can receive and partake of each other's victories. That we are not an island. We are a clod in an island. <laughs> Do you follow me? We are not a ship adrift on the waves. We are a plank on a ship adrift on the waves. <laughs> and we're not adrift. <laughs> if you want to escape temptation... Acknowledge to yourself right now, I'm not all that different. Because that's what Paul predicates the escape from temptation with. He says, no temptation has befallen you that is all that unique and special. But God has provided a way of escape. You're responsible. Colossians 2.5, Paul said, even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline. He's not there, but in the spirit, he can feel that they are staying in their good discipline. He is absent, but with them in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline, and the stability of your faith in Christ. Can everybody say stability of faith? Do you think of faith that way? As something that is either wobbly, fickle, coming and going, here today, gone tomorrow. There is a kind of stability of faith. 
the faith that is fickle, that is unstable in all of its ways, what is it based on? It's based on two voices. Remember we talked about last week, everybody's got faith. It's just a question of who you have faith in. It's circumstantial. Now I'm here, now I'm not there. Amen. We talked about it on Sunday from faith to faith to doubting to despair to grumbling to whining to faith to... Or, or is it just from faith to faith? Who, who are the people who are instable in their faith? They are those who are tossed and carried about by waves and ooh, this and ooh, that. And they're the double-minded. They're those who have a truth source other than and in addition to God and his spirit. And that secondary truth source is usually believed to come right from in here. My holy perspective. And that holy perspective of self, whenever somebody confronts you with reality, whenever they tell you a story, whenever they give you a word of encouragement from someone's experience, or they give you a word of warning from someone's experience, that holy perspective of self finds one little crack, one little difference from that story to yours. And you say, oh, mm, I see. Uh, I'm not the same because I'm like this and he's like that. And you hide behind this exceptionalness that is a complete delusion. But he says, I see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted. Your Bible may say, does anybody want to pull out a couple translations here? Give me an NIV, a New King James, and a NASB. Does anybody have an Amplified here? Can I have it? I almost brought this, but it was so wordy that I scrapped it, but I'm going to go back to it now. So we're in Colossians here. Colossians 2.5. For though I am away from you in my body, yet I am with you in spirit, delighted at the sight of your standing shoulder to shoulder in such orderly array and the firmness and the solid front and steadfastness of your faith. <laughs> Why didn't I write down the, the Amplified? The firmness and the solid front. It's like, it's like a battle. It's an array for battle. It's, it's the front. It's not putting up a front. It's establishing a barricade of opposition to whatever would undermine this faith. Those of you who have New King James, does it say firmness of faith? What does it say? Steadfastness, Steadfastness of faith. Who, who's got NASB? What does it say? Stability? NIV. How, how does it read? How firm, how firm your faith is. You want to delight those who watch out for your souls in God. When they're present or when they're absent. When they can be there holding your hand and when they can't. Would you please pray that God help you come to a firmness of faith. That's what we talked about last week, isn't it? But it's okay to talk about it again this week. Your firmness of faith. He goes on here, he says, 
that the entire leaning of the human personality, of your human personality, is on him in absolute trust, confidence, and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. Amen. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. There's a lot that could be unpacked from that scripture. But what got me was firmness. Now let's look at another scripture that talks about firmness. Everybody go to 1 Peter 5 and 8. You know this one. Be of sober spirit. Now, <laughs> sober here doesn't mean mopey. <laughs> I know a lot of Christians take solace in that passage because they think it's an excuse to keep a sour attitude, but <laughs> that's not what he's meaning here. Sober means not drunk. So be of an undrunken spirit <laughs> is how it, could be how it could read. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He wants to eat you, but resist him. Here's the same word used in James, resist him. Firm, how does yours read? Firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. How do you resist the devil? He told us in James to resist him, but here he elaborates, he tells us, what has to be firm? <laughs> your faith. You can, you can mess with me, but you're not going to find any mush in my faith. Firm in your faith, knowing, look at this, that you are an exception. <laughs> facing things that nobody else has ever encountered. Now, why do you think, here we are talking about resisting the one who leads us into temptation. And it's not Paul, it's Peter. And we've got this notion again that you're not all that different. You think God is trying to wake us up to something? The devil messes with your faith and turns rocks into mush when he convinces you of the lie that you can't learn from the collective experience of those around you, those who've gone before you, those who've whose stories have been written down in the Bible. You're not that exceptional. You're exceptionally ordinary. All of us are. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, back to James, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, make firm, strengthen, and establish you. My dad has often referred to this James passage, James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's often referred to isometric bodybuilding or isometric strength building. Is everybody familiar with that? I didn't say asymmetric, I said isometric, meaning equal 
measurement. It's a kind of strength building that is not picking something up like a barbell, but it is simply staying still and pressing against something, even an immovable object. This word, to press, to resist the devil, it has that connotation. It, it, the word is, in the Greek, it is anthestomy or something of that nature. To set against, to cause to stand. To withstand, to oppose, to resist. To press against. It means anti-against, standing against something. Have you, ever, have you ever been on a boat where you felt like it was everything you could do to, to keep standing up? Or been in the back of a pickup where you could barely stand? There are forces of gravity, invisible forces, that are trying to toss you around. But the core strength of your body tenses up and allows you to stand against those odds. If you were just a pillar standing on the ground and someone came up to you and pushed you, they'd topple you right over. Human beings are actually top-heavy. But because of the strength that is woven through your whole skeleton, someone can come to you and push you pretty hard and you can withstand it. And if they do get you over, you're not going to just tip over like a pillar. You're going to crumple some other way. But there's strength. And that's the, the connotation in this, in this uh, word that, Paul, that, that James and Peter are using. Resist him. But the firmness is not your willpower. The firmness is your faith in God. The firmness is that conviction. God spoke to me. I confessed it. I believed it. And I'm not letting it go. We're told that when animals of prey perceive weakness in their prey, it excites them. A shark is not going to bite, is not going to go in for the kill until the fish he's chasing does a little panicked wobble of the tail. <laughs> and he's going to go in. If you're trying to catch a bass, all the lures try to titillate the killer instincts in those fish to go for that panic. And the devil is the same way. He's like a roaring lion saying, who can I devour? And there are people who when they see the lion tail swishing around the corner or hear his roar in the night, they get all panicky. And there are others who are not that way, who don't feel that panic, who feel a firmness in God. They place no confidence in the flesh, but they've got a lot of confidence in God. Picture it in another way. He says, resist him and he will flee from you. We're going we're gonna to get into that flee here in a minute. But the word resist 
It's like if you were to, if you were to push on a, on a water balloon, you got a lot of give in that, right? But you push on this, there's not a lot of give in it. It's pretty solid. How much give is in your faith? How much give is in your conviction? How much flexibility is in your obedience? Something about the devil, when he encounters somebody who has no give, who has no mush, it does not make him modify his intensity. It makes him tuck tail and run. <laughs> now let's talk about this word flee. The word is fugo. It shares a Latin word, a Latin root, that is familiar to most of us. Fugio, from which we get fugitive. So you could say, if you'll firm up your faith and stop showing mush to the devil, you'll make a fugitive out of an assailant. Amen. It means, the word flee here means to shrink. Stand right there in front of you and shrink. To stand fearfully aloof. To back away. To make an escape. It's used all throughout the New Testament when it says that the man ran out of his clothes and fled from them at the arrest of Jesus, that's the word. I thought that was notable. It kind of gives the connotation that we can't picture on our enemy, our adversary. That there is something that he encounters in the saints of God that makes him panic and recoil and flee in the opposite direction. <laughs> it's not a passive word, that means he just desists. It's an active word that means he takes flight. When Jesus says, if they persecute you in another, flee. If they persecute you in one city, flee to another. That's the word. Many times in connotations of fear throughout the Bible, I'll skip most of these. Matthew 2, Matthew 8, 1 Corinthians 10, fled. It's, it's this terror of getting away, fleeing from something terrifying. What is terrifying the devil in this equation? What, is he, what does he say in Ephesians 6? Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm, same word, against the schemes of the devil. It's not so much landing a blow on him. You can't kill him. But if you just show him, I'm immovable. I'm not budging. God gave me something, and you're not going to turn it into mush. He is going to panic and recoil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. Praise you, Jesus. What was it again, Simeon? Not today, Satan. Not today, Satan.
Amen. Not today, not tomorrow, not next day, not the week after that. Thank you, Jesus. Not ever. If saints can become really and truly convicted and immovable in their conviction, the devil will stop hassling their faith. If he's hassling you, it's because he perceives a weakness he can exploit, just like the shark or the lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. Are you somebody he could devour? Do you exhibit a mushy faith? Because you don't have to say it. That's why the Bible says you must bring every thought into captivity to the mind of Christ. We can start entertaining wrong spirits without even saying a word to anybody. But it's going to take discipline to bring every thought, to have this, this, I see your good discipline and the stability or the firmness of your faith in Christ. It's going to take something to get there. But that's what we've got to focus on. That's what we've got to stick to. And if we can achieve that, we're not just going to see the devil back away or give a pause, we're going to see him fleeing over the furthest hill. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody says, I'm wrestling with the devil. You shouldn't be wrestling with the devil. You should be resisting him, and he'll be fleeing. I don't feel like we're supposed to wrestle with him. I know we say that in a meaningful way, and that's fine. We can keep saying it. But really, we're not supposed to do hand-to-hand -hand combat with him. We're supposed to bring our own thoughts into captivity. We're supposed to bring our own lives into obedience. That's the real contact sport in this arena. As far as he's concerned, we need to give him no quarter and convince him that we are an utter waste of time. Can you summarize what I've said to you thus far? Because I'm done now. If you want to resist the devil and find your way of escape from all his snares of temptation, discover that his biggest snare is the lie that suggests you are an exception. You are not an exception. In discovering that you're not an exception, you're going to open yourself up to a litany of examples, victories, power, grace, patience, strength that your brothers fought for you. But if you can't do that, you're walking down or rather climbing up Fool's Hill. You're making yourself a fool. And that the kind of resistance is the kind that shows no flexibility to your conviction. It says no. No flexibility. And God help us. God help us when the enemy starts flexing our convictions. When the enemy starts bringing a little mush into what our convictions are or should be. We will no longer be able to resist him and we will not be causing him to flee but inciting him to attack. So one manifestation of or rather I should say, a man, uh, the idea that I'm an exception is really a manifestation of a bigger sin, and that is the sin of self-pity. And nobody ever wins another battle from the uh, with the devil after they have succumbed to the sin of self-pity. It's over.
your Cain, your King Saul, your Judas. But self-pity is where he's trying to get you. And if he can get you there, there's no battle left to fight. He's won. Amen. And that's really what, that's really what uh, the whole yammering about b- being an exception is. It's saying, I'm different. God hasn't provided for my exceptionalness in, in the providence of his grace. Can I read you a little poem, though, that pokes a few holes in self-pity? I didn't write this, so don't blame me if it's not altogether good. But this may be helpful to some. People who refuse to walk by faith are always living, as they say in the rearview mirror. They're always imagining what their life might have been, how things could have been, should have been, would have been, if only. But that's not the walk of faith. From faith to faith and glory to glory, the righteousness of God is being revealed. We're not living in the might have beens. So there's a poem called The Might Have Been. And I got to read this to you because it, it got me. It's made me smile, but it, it had some truth in it. So <clears throat> this man is, is going to do a little, uh, a little uh, ballad to what might have been. So he says, he starts with a toast to what might have been. Here's to the days that might have been. Here's to the life I might have led. The fame I might have gathered in, the glory ways I might have sped. Great might have been I drink to you upon a throne where thousands hail. And then there looms another view, I also might have been in jail. (laughs) (laughs) O land of might have been, we turn with aching hearts to where you wait, where crimson fires of glory burn and laurel crowns the guarding gate. We may not see across your fields the sightless skulls that knew their woe, the broken spears, the shattered shields that might have been as truly so. Of all sad words of tongue or pen, so wails the poet in his pain. The saddest are, it might have been, and, world ri- and worldwide runs the dull refrain. The saddest? Yes. But in the jar, this thought brings me with its curse. I sometimes think the gladdest are, it might have been a whole lot worse. I like that. And I got one more for you. Can you take one more? We can poke fun at the lies the devil tell us, tells us, can't we? I might have been in jail. So this is kind of a a back and forth dialogue between the realistic pessimist and somebody who's trying to keep their spirits up. You follow me here? I didn't write this, so don't blame me. This is called philosophy for croakers. It's serious. I think Brother Stan gave me this book, so if it's not any good, blame it on him. Some folks get a heap a lot of pleasure out of looking glum. They hoard their cares like it was treasure, fear they won't have some. They wear black border on their spirit, hang their hopes with crepe. Future's gloomy and they fear it, sure there's no escape. Now there ain't no use of whining, weight and joy with lead. There is silver in the lining somewhere up ahead. 
can't enjoy the sun today, it may rain tomorrow. When a pain won't come their way, future pains they borrow. <laughs> if there's good news to be heard, ears are stuffed with cotton. Evils dire are often inferred, good is all forgotten. When upon a peel I stand, slipping like a goner, uh, luck I trust will shake my hand just around the corner. Keep a scarecrow in the yard, fierce old bulldog near him. Chase off joy that's trying hard to come in, in and cheer him. Wear their blinders big and strong, dodge each happy sight. Like to keep their faces long, think the day is night. Now I've had my share of trouble, back been bent with ill. Big load makes the joy seem double when I mount the hill. Got the toothache in their soul, corns upon their feelings. Get their share but want the whole, say it's crooked dealings. Nature's steeped in indigo, got their joy wires crossed. Swear it's only weeds that grow, flowers always lost. Now it's best to sing a song, instead of sitting and mourn. Roses you'll find grow right along, bigger than the thorn. Beat the frogs when they croak at night. <laughs> Beat the frogs the way they croak. See with goggles blue, universe is cracked or broke, about to split in two. Know everyone is full of sin, will soon go up in a spout, badness always moving in, goodness always moving out. <laughs> but I've found folks good and kind, because I thought they would be. Most men try, at least I find, to be as they should be. Amen. So I was saying that the devil likes self-pity. Try to beat it away. Try to tell him that you're not an exception, that you're eligible for the same promises that God gave Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, and the disciples, that you're part of the same cloud of witnesses and overcomers. Hallelujah, that I want my way of escape, and if they've made a way, I want to walk through that too. Amen. I'm, no, no about you, but I'm glad the Lord spoke to us about faith again this week. Amen. It feels like we've gone from faith to faith. Amen. <laughs> We're starting to gain some momentum. You know, when you get a, when you get, you're trying to get something rolling, and you give it a little push, and it rolls and stops, and you got to do the same thing again to get it going every time. But if you give it a push, and you push again while it's still moving, Amen. then you start to get something that's called momentum. It's hard to stop. Amen. And that's what I feel tonight. God is building his word inside of us. And I want to share one thing that this just really, I'm going to rephrase something that Brother Rossi already shared with us. But, you know, I think one of the reasons that we can tuck this little exceptionalism away in our pocket and not recognize it for what it is, is because we have the illusion that we do have faith because I believe God in general. You know, I believe that he can do it over here and I can believe he can do it in the future and maybe circumstances will one day rearrange and then it'll be possible. So it's, you know, it's somehow, I still somehow have this faith. So I'm not an unbeliever. Amen. It's just that, you know, things are different for me right now, you know, or it's not my personality or it's just all those thousands of reasons that we dredge up to make ourselves an exception. But I feel like tonight the Lord is squeezing out the room for that illusion. Amen. He's making us 
give it no place, isn't he? Amen. Because if we really believe God, then we're gonna, we got to believe his word. And his word is getting clearer to us tonight, isn't it? His word tells us we are not an exception. So we can no longer claim that we are believers unless we receive that word. Amen. Amen. Do you hear it? Amen. Do you receive it? Do you believe it? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's be done with the illusion. Let's believe God for what it really is. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.